Hi, you're listening to the International Risk Podcast. This podcast is for CEOs, board members, risk and compliance officers, security advisors, and anyone interested in improving operations. On this podcast, we hear from the traditional to the wacky, from renowned corporate risk experts to former spies and special forces soldiers. There is something to learn about the way we perceive, manage and mitigate risk from all of our guests. Your host, Dominic Bowen, will ask the questions that you will want the answers to. If you know Dominic, then you know that he is well acquainted with risk. Dominic has successfully established operations in most of the major war zones and disaster affected countries over the last 20 years. He is no stranger to risk and uncertainty, and joined by our excellent guests, he'll reveal innovative ideas on how you can ensure your organisation thrives in areas with high risk. The only issue is not whether Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega won Sunday's controversial election, but rather whether he seized it. Ortega had imprisoned scores of critics, including seven of the most competitive would-be candidates, and barred independent observers and journalists from entering the country. International condemnation was swift and harsh. Ortega needs elections anyway to try and tame a semblance of democratic practices and functioning of the state, and to seek legitimacy, both internally and internationally. Good morning. I'm Dominic, and I'm the host of the International Risk Podcast. Today, we're joined by Tiziano Breda. Welcome to the podcast, Tiziano. Thanks, Dominic, for having me. No, it's great to have you on board. And today, we're going to be talking about Central America. And he's a Central American analyst for the International Crisis Group, and he's a proactive conflict resolution practitioner. As a seasoned foreign policy and political analyst, his insights have made appearances around the world on The Guardian, Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, and many more. He's an expert on gang violence, migration, and political instability across Central America. So I think we're going to have a really fantastic conversation today. For our listeners that aren't aware, on the 10th of November in Nicaragua, the Supreme Electoral Council said that the existing president, Ortega, won with 75% of the votes. And this is no big surprise. Even before elections were held in Nicaragua, it was evident that Ortega was potentially going to manipulate the results and this would be cracking down on opposition. First of all, I wonder, Tiziano, can you explain to our listeners, why does this matter? Why is this even important to us today? Well, the electoral process that Nicaragua experienced this year was marked by a level of crackdown on opponents, the likes of which were unseen or unprecedented in Latin America in recent history, since the waning of the dictatorships, uh, the military dictatorships of the 1980s. Ortega basically, between May and September, locked up over 40 high-level opponents, including seven presidential hopefuls, ruled illegal three opposition parties. So basically, virtually beheaded any form of opposition that could have challenged him in these elections that were held on the 7th of November, which of course sets a very dangerous precedent for the way in which he ensured his fourth consecutive terms in office uh, starting next year. You talk about the waning dictatorships of the 1980s, but as you said, we are seeing a re-emergence of really dangerous acts and arresting 40 opponents, including seven presidential hopefuls. You have to ask, why did 
did Ortega even hold elections in the first place? What does he actually win by holding elections that everyone recognizes are a sham anyway? Ortega needs elections anyway to try and attain a semblance of democratic practices and functioning of the state and to seek legitimacy, both internally and internationally. So elections serve this purpose of showing, displaying a widespread popular support and widespread participation in the election. Actually, the results that the Supreme Electoral Council published on the 10th of November not only displayed this widespread victory, this great margin of victory of his party, but also an extremely high turnout of 65%, whereas civil society observers estimated there was actually around 20% turnout. So really people didn't feel like going out to vote. But elections fundamentally serve this purpose of showing that there is a functioning democracy to nurture this sort of parallel reality that Ortega has built of whose narrative of what happened in the last few years, particularly since 2018, when a wave of mass protests shook the country that were heavily depressed by the government, with more than 300 people there. And in Ortega's mind, in Ortega's narrative, this was an attempted coup d'etat backed by the US. And so everything, every action of repression is justified under this rhetoric, including the electoral-related crackdown. We know that Venezuela and Cuba congratulated Nicaragua on its vote, and even the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov slammed US criticism and saying it was unacceptable that the US criticised Nicaragua's elections. And Russia said that the elections, according to Russian electoral observers, was held in orderly manner and in full compliance with Nicaraguan legislation. Now, many observers would perhaps say that Venezuela, Cuba and Russia are not the most ideal countries to be adding legitimacy to an electoral campaign or the the process of elections. So do you think that Ortega was actually successful in gaining legitimacy? I mean, did he change the narrative as a result of these elections? He was actually unable to convince most Western states that these elections were held in a free and fair fashion. Over 45 countries between the European ones and the Latin American ones criticized the election, did not recognize the results, and are heavily calling on Ortega to reverse course. But of course, on the other hand, he managed to maintain the produced group of countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Bolivia, Russia, China. And we'll see how many will he be able to get after uh, January 10th, which will be the day in which he's sworn in again. So how many will get in terms of recognizing his next presidency, possibly in other continents, Belarus, some African countries. So, of course, it's a matter of seeking a group of countries that can balance somehow the growing pressure and the critics that are mounting at the international level over this, this very election. Yeah, and, you, and you're right that he was certainly unable to convince most Western states that the elections were free and fair. But what about domestically? Will this quell public protests? And what should international observers, businesses that have invested in Nicaragua, what should they be expecting in the lead up to 10th of January? That's a very good question. It's quite unpredictable. I think in the short term, we're unlikely to see this continued crackdown to prompt another wave of rejection of outcry and which translates into mass protest along the likes of what happened in 2018. This for two reasons. First of all, because of fear. I was last there in Nicaragua in March before I was basically suggested that I I should not go back again in the short term. And the people I spoke to all were 
very afraid of speaking out because the government had managed to strengthen the sort of intelligence network to the very local level, having ears and eyes everywhere, and imposes this de facto police state, which really scares people and prevents most of them from speaking out. On the other hand, there was also a lot of disillusionment, people guarding what was the outcome of this wave of mass protest in 2018, which gave rise to new umbrella organizations composed of academics, students, leaders, entrepreneurs, civil society activists, and some politicians, which were unable to eventually come together, bend together, and and build a cohesive front with strong demands and common demands against Ortega, and were indeed, on the contrary, torn by infightings over ideological or even personal differences, which made the crackdown more like easier to succeed, basically, in, in crashing these sort of not united opposition movements. In the short term, it's unlikely that this combination of disillusionment, deception and fear will trigger, will morph into another wave of rejection of government. But of course, much will depend on how much is the Ortega government able to ensure an economic lifeline in the next few years and maintain its economy afloat. And as we mentioned, there's been widespread international condemnation about the elections, including from the OAS, the Organization of American States, and also from the US President Biden, who accused the election of being a sham. And he actually expanded sanctions on key members of the Ortega government and restricted multilateral bank lending, which will impact the economy, which, as you said, is going to be a real determining factor and a key indicator for businesses and analysts watching the situation in Nicaragua to understand the risk profile. And we know that members of the Nicaraguan government are actually banned from entering the US as well as a few other parts of the sanctions. But what are the effects of the sanctions in Nicaragua? And does this actually achieve anything? We know that many cases, sanctions actually affect the poor and rarely affect the power holders. What do we expect these sanctions to achieve? Well, there has been an evolution of the impact of sanctions in Nicaragua. I think at the beginning in 2018, when the first rounds of sanctions were imposed by then-President Trump, they were a novelty, and the combined pressure to Nicaragua and to one of its key allies, Venezuela's Nicolás Maduro, which in early 2019 really seemed on, on the brink of being toppled, basically, or lose the, the key support from some partners, actually added an impact on Ortega's calculations and made him uh, like possibly contributed to press him into conceding a resumption of talks with this variety of opposition groups that were gathered under the Civic Alliance uh, for Justice and Democracy. The first round of talks happened in 2018 at the height of the protests when streets were really filled with people and Ortega could feel the pressure, popular pressure on his government. This first round of, of sanctions, the novelty, really had an initiative, but, but since the failure of this second round of talks in mid-2019, the cumulative and progressive accumulation of, of sanctions, this time more targeted compared to what happened in Venezuela, Iran, or other parts of the world, because in the case of Nicaragua, we're talking of targeted sanctions towards officials, a few entities, but not sectorial, not economic or commercial in nature. The cumulative use of these sanctions has really done little to persuade Ortega into changing course and, on the contrary, has nurtured and strengthened his anti-imperialist rhetoric, which contributed to the creation of this reality that I was referring to earlier on as everything being part of this U.S. specs scheme to plot to, to topple it. And therefore, we're seeing Ortega retaliating often to the new rounds of sanctions imposed through his officials, allies, or even family members. 
which often translates into greater pressure on the opponents in the country with more detentions or things like that, or to international moves to try and create more problems for the U.S. in a region that is very sensitive. For example, the latest decision to re-establish relations with China and not de-recognizing Taiwan. These things rarely happen in a vacuum, don't they? It was a car, a Trump car that Ortega had for quite a long time. But of course, using it at the right moment, in the moment in which you have a lot of mounting international outcry was the election. Uh, new rounds of sanctions of the U.S. really means that you're trying to find ways to elude this kind of pressure and to find new partners to somehow balance this pressure and possibly seek new resources, knowing that in the long run, the medium to long run, access to, for example, international loans will get more and more complicated as a result of these sanctions, but also of the very lack of legitimacy that the next Ortega government will have at the international level. And thirdly, greater isolation that the government is actually pursuing itself by, for example, deciding to withdraw from, to exit the Organization of American States, the main regional multilateral body. Just as I mentioned, to complement what I was saying, the sanctions in the case of Nicaragua were more targeted. So that means that they have a more limited impact on the economy in the short run. Of course, sanctioned officials may have repercussions for enterprises they may run. There may be tiny economic impact at the local level. But overall, the economic recession that the country has been experiencing since 2018 and to 2020 was mainly related to the crisis itself, to the protests, to the crackdown, to the chasing away of international or foreign investment, for example, and less related to the sanctions themselves. And on the topic of foreign investments, when I look at risks internationally, and when I'm assessing risk actors and drivers of risks, one consideration is always economic influences. Now, considering that foreign investment has been declining in Nicaragua, I'm curious, what is actually financially fueling the Ortega regime? Well, we have to start from the assumption that Nicaragua is the second poorest country in the whole continent. So the overall macroeconomic system is at the same time small, but possibly less affected as not being shocked by this sort of crisis as, for example, the Venezuelan economy, which was one of the largest was with the events of the recent years. The Nicaraguan is an export-oriented economy, so it is actually being kept afloat, particularly this year, and recovering from this session of the past few years, by the floating prices of some export goods, particularly gold, in recovery of the textile this year, and some others, the agricultural capital branches. As a second element, you also have a rise in remittances because one of the consequences of this crisis has been an increase in the outflow of Nicaraguan migrants and asylum seekers seeking shelter in Costa Rica and this year particularly also in the US, which of course is providing a lifeline. But paradoxically, a third element that has been crucial for now has been international loans. The US has already, even before the signing of the Renaissance Act, recently by President Biden, had already a law called the NICA Act, which already mandated its representatives in international financial institutions to strengthen pressure against unleaving outlaying funds to Nicaragua. But this excluded the funds that were related to humanitarian issues or natural disasters, for example. And therefore, the 
pandemic and the impact of two back-to-back hurricanes in late 2020 provided actually basically a gift to Ortega because they, they provided the exemption for the sanctions and, and really contributed to increase the national reserves through a number of loans being approved by IMF, the World Bank, the Central American Bank and others. And for the average Nicaraguan on the ground, they're not necessarily going to benefit from increasing gold prices. Maybe for those working in textile factories, maybe for those working in agriculture. But for the average Nicaraguan on the ground, when they look at the risks and the opportunities in 2022, what's the outlook looking like for them? The people really on the ground are feeling it. And that's actually been translating recently in this massive increase in the numbers of Nicaraguans who are deciding to leave the country because they cannot find the means to sustain their families. And this combined with the greater repression that the government is carrying out on any dissident voice. So you're seeing, for example, this year, more than 100,000 Nicaraguans who are leaving the country, basically, or have left the country towards mostly Costa Rica um, and the US. This number is possibly like to grow if the sociopolitical crisis that underlie the economic crisis is not solved in the coming months and years. I mean, there's been plenty of reporting about the government's increasing repression towards opposition figures and independent journalists. And you were there in March. What are the risks to a political analyst like yourself when you're in Nicaragua? Well, the first problem is to get in because the ports of entry are quite surveilled, not only for opponents or potential critics, both at the national or the international levels, but even to allies. There are multiple reports that are displaying how the Ortega government is also prohibiting exit from the country to a number of allies, uh, basically, out of fear that what's out, they could trade the government or leak information or somehow contributes to increase pressure on the government. The first challenge is really to get in. Once you're in, it's really a matter of being careful what to do, who you meet with. There's a risk that you are being followed by the security services. But the government has not gone so far as to actually carry out greater measures towards international observers. They've rather prevented them from coming in before they could create or they could denounce what's going on. What, what does this mean for countries in the region with Nicaragua's continued democratic backslide? Is this going to cause further challenges for businesses and governments and citizens living and working in neighboring countries? There are three layers, I think, of concerns here. The first is, of course, the political impact that the Nicaraguan crisis can have that the Ortega's playbook can have on other authoritarian wannabes, of which the region is not lacking. And of course, the greatest concern is that others may follow Ortega's footsteps if they perceive that the, the costs of doing that at the national and international level were low. Luckily, one of the countries that we were concerned about, was Honduras, has staged a very mostly peaceful election just a few weeks after Nicaragua. And we hope to see this transition to a new government, which hopes in the democratic function of a state. The concern at the political level is also about actually the US and the region as a whole ability to sway governments in the region one governments like that of Nicaragua, because the absolutely the closure of Ortega and his entrenchment and rejection of any diplomatic engagement so far or lately has, of course, boots the tools that the 
international community has at its disposal and puts a test at these tools. The second element or sets of consequences is, of course, at the, the economic terms. Central America is a deeply integrated region and, of course, having a parallel state with an increasing number of entities of officials being sanctioned can create a problem in the strengthening of the trade and commercial ties in the region. And, of course, it can also, as it is doing, freeze the Central America integration system, SICA, who was being put out Secretary General for quite a while now, and where tensions between these states actually concentrated. The third and final point that I wanted to make is that this can have also a humanitarian impact. We're seeing this increasing outflow of Nicaraguan migrants and asylum seekers, not only putting pressure on neighboring Costa Rica, which is a traditional, historic destination country for Nicaraguans seeking better life conditions, whose migration authorities are overwhelmed by a backlog of almost 100,000 asylum requests. But also, physically, this flow is also going northward toward the U.S. So, of course, it can put increased pressure on the shelters, on the migration route. It deepened the humanitarian crisis at Bottleneck, that is the U.S. South and border with Mexico, and definitely it contributes to strengthen these human trafficking rings and this illicit economy. The benefits for migrants in terms of extortion, kidnapping, rape, and other crimes, that definitely contributes to worsen the humanitarian and security situation. You mentioned the risks of how events in Nicaragua could embolden other leaders with similar authoritarian tendencies. You're a political analyst. Which countries do you assess as presenting the greatest likelihood of employing the Ortega playbook? We're seeing warring trends of similarities between some of the actions taken by Ortega and some of the initiatives, for example, carried out by El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, who's, of course, placed the attorney general as soon as he had control of the legislative assembly, as well as the constitutional court, which has actually then ruled in favor of a possible re-election, which is prohibited by the constitution, and has recently even presented a bill called the Foreign Agents Law, it's one of the laws being used by Ortega to crack down on civil society organizations who receives funds from abroad. So there are some actions that hint at a similar concentration of power, widening the toolbox for a possible repression at a later time, because of course Bukele doesn't need that yet, having great popularity in the country with over 80% of public approval. But this is definitely naturally going to decrease over time. So I think in the region is the most emblematic case of a rule that, that is raising some high eyebrows in terms of these practices. But Latin America as a whole has other leaders that are presenting similar authoritarian tendencies. The election results, as I mentioned earlier, were not only congratulated, but defended by Russia, which sent election observers to Nicaragua to observe the election, which is perhaps ironic considering Russia's current stance on democracy and relationship with democracy. What are Russia's interests in Nicaragua? I think the most evident interest of Russia in Nicaragua is the geopolitical one. Having a foothold in a region that is very sensitive to the U.S., backing a country that is very problematic for the U.S. is the first and most obvious reason for Russia to maintain its presence, to maintain good relations with the country. The economic and commercial level, Nicaragua has little to offer to Russia, but the political level is very important. And also in the security cooperation realm, 
we are seeing greater cooperation on certain issues such as intelligence, sharing or strengthening practices to gather intelligence and to cooperate on security matters, which some believe that is used by the Nicaraguan government to fine-tune all the tactics of identifying and tracking down on opponents. And the Russians are using to increase their presence and possibly through a military center that they have built in Nicaragua. Some believe it's hard to get, of course, more information on it, but that could be used as an intelligence gathering center for Russia as well in the region, including towards the U.S. Well, some very clear benefits to Russia supporting activities in Nicaragua if there's some of the wins that they may get out of that relationship. When we look towards 2022, what do you see as some of the biggest risks emerging in Central America? The greatest concern is, of course, that the Ortega government continues to crack down on the opposition to keep political prisoners in jail or even detain and doesn't offer any opening that can pave the way for a negotiated solution out of the crisis, which can definitely have the repercussions that we were discussing before in the medium run. On the other hand, there's an overall deterioration of the U.S.-Central America relations, let's see, with El Salvador, but including with Guatemala. We'll have to see how the elections of Xiomara Castro in Honduras plays out, because, of course, there are some points of coincidence of U.S. and Castro's interest, resuming the fight against corruption and changing a bit the economic model of the country. But there are others, particularly at the political level, that two governments different, particularly the issue of Venezuela or possibly the issue of China. The overall risk is that these sort of tensions continue to grow, which are not beneficial to either the US nor Central American countries. And third risk at the regional level is that the sort of reboots that we're seeing not only in the economic realm, but also in the violence realm, particularly in Guatemala and Honduras, can continue. The region doesn't get out, of course, of the impact of the pandemic at the economic level, but criminal organizations readapt quickly to the new conditions and continue to strengthen their grip on communities, particularly regarding criminal gangs, and resort more and more often to, to violence. We're already seeing this year an uptick in violence compared to 2020, when there was a starch decrease. That's a trend that we're seeing closely and we're concerned. Well, thanks very much for explaining that today, Tiziano, and thanks very much for coming on the International Wiz podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much to you. Well, that was a really interesting conversation with Tiziana Breda from the International Crisis Group, speaking with us today about recent elections in Nicaragua, what the risks are within Nicaragua, and the implications internationally. Thank you for listening today, and please subscribe to ensure you receive our podcast every week. You've been listening to the International Risk Podcast hosted by Dominic Bowen. Please go to wherever you download your podcasts and give this podcast a five-star review. Your positive reviews on this podcast and subscribing to future downloads is critical for our success. If you know someone that has experienced successfully working with risk, has a great story to share and would like to come on the show, send us an email at contact at the international risk podcast.com. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for your fix of risk-related stories.